buyers are not going to want to have a, uh, a drastic drop in, in resale value as soon as they drive off the lot with a new vehicle. So I believe that they will avoid General Motors vehicles and Chrysler vehicles for that matter, and that the, uh, the other automakers would benefit at the expense of General Motors and Chrysler. Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum, and for once, I'm in the same room with my co-host. That's right. Welcome to New York City, David. I'm Laura Conaway. That was Dennis Virag, auto analyst and president of the Automotive Consulting Group you just heard at the top of the podcast. Today is Monday, April 27th. We have lots of Planet Money indicators coming out of Detroit. How about 21,000? That's the number of workers who will be laid off in the coming months. And, David, there's also four, of course. That is the number of brands GM will kill off, including Pontiac and Hummer. Or you could get a Planet Money indicator from a lot farther off, like $250 million. That's a loan? That's Anybody? A loan. That is the loan the World Bank is going to extend to Mexico to deal with the outbreak of swine flu. We uh, On today's podcast, we are uh, later. I'm very excited about this. We are going to unveil... Um, it's sort of like a Planet Money confessional booth for people, anyone out there who had some small role or maybe a larger role in the financial crisis to... Get it all off their chest. Yeah, That's later. Yeah. You, you don't have to be amazingly famous, but if your name happens to be Tim Geithner or Alan Greenspan or something like that. We'll give you the number. Dude, the line is open. That's coming up. First, though, we're going to take a long look today on Planet Money at another industry in trouble, not the auto industry, the media. We're going to start with some news that, for me, is kind of personal. If you're a journalist, and especially any kind of financial journalist, that's a pretty small circle, you can relate to this. This this is big. Even if you're not a journalist, this is just one of those nightmare tales. All right, here goes. Okay. Today, Portfolio Magazine comes out and says it's closing down. Now, Portfolio Magazine has kind of been trying to be like the New Yorker, but for financial stuff. It looks great. It reads great. It's a ton of fun. Yeah, a whole suite of blogs. Really nice writing. We really like it. And it's just, it's beautiful. But the Condé Nast publication did not catch on with readers or advertisers. It turned two years old this month. Uh, it's headquartered just up the street from us in Manhattan. I always see their black limos out front when I ride home on my bike. Uh, it used to be located there. They called the staff together this morning and told them the magazine is shutting down. So our regular listeners of the show will remember Felix Salmon. He was a blogger for Portfolio. And you don't have to cry for Felix Salmon. No, you don't. No, because Felix, he left in March to go blog for Reuters. So he's okay. But of course, they hired somebody to fill his desk. Yeah, his replacement is named Ryan Avent. And he had been writing a blog for The Economist, which is one of the great great places you can ever be. It was called, it still is called, Free Exchange. It's The Economist's big blog. Ryan Avent started at Portfolio on April 15th, which we'll just calculate that for you at home, not even two weeks ago. That is not even long enough to go downstairs, you know, and get your new business cards made. Ryan says he was actually still getting congratulatory emails about his new job. And he was kind enough to talk to us today about what it's like to leave one of the most prestigious shops in journalism for a cool opportunity at a place that, you know, closes down. It, as far as I can tell, it was a surprise to everyone in Portfolio. I don't, I don't, I don't think they were stringing me along. They were as taken aback by the news 
as I was. So, well, you know, I got to give it to you on timing there, Ryan. I know it's um, it's a real kick in the head. Uh, I, I, you know, I understood that that um, this was definitely a possibility. I didn't think that um, it would be a possibility so soon. <laughs> Uh, I thought things would really had to sort of get worse for the economy as a whole for uh, for them to to get to this position. But um, you know, the good side is that uh, if there's a good side, is that uh, you know there's an ongoing need for or demand for people writing about economics and finance issues. And you know, portfolio was a great stage. It would have been nice if it had lasted a little longer. But um, I can't feel too bad about having the chance to to get a little more exposure and maybe uh, something will come along soon. Man, you know, sometimes you just land at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Advertising and portfolio apparently fell 60% from the first quarter of this year compared to the same quarter last year. Which is really not good news. But I got to say one thing about Ryan Avent, and he says it himself, he has got plenty of company all across the media. Newspapers have been reporting record falls in paid circulation. Newspaper jobs are evaporating from Miami to Seattle, Hartford, Connecticut, San Diego, California, every place. Newsrooms are half the size they were just a decade ago, and in some cases, half the size they were just a few years ago. So we have in the studio sitting right next to us here is NPR's media correspondent, David Fulkenflick. Hey. Hey, guys. Hey. So you are a former newspaper guy at the shop where my wife uh, is still a reporter, The Baltimore Sun, a couple blocks from my house. Uh, You know, my dad worked for The Inquirer for decades. And, man, you know, newspaper folk, they used to be, like, the most fun to hang out with. When I was a kid, in addition to having pneumatic tubes there at the office, they were just really great stories to tell. And now when you go and hang out with newspaper people, you know, it is just – it is really sad. Well, you're you're not kidding. I mean, you know, like, did you hear the one about this year's Pulitzer winner in Arizona who had just been laid off by his newspaper? That's true story. So was the one about the guy who was a reporter in the suburbs of St. Louis who took a bullet while covering a city council meeting last year. He lost his job, too. And so did the blogger for the Chicago Tribune who wrote on dealing with the recession every day. He was just laid off and not allowed to blog about it. So, David, it's really clearly not a very pitying kind of industry. I've been kicked out of it myself two or three times, print newspapering. Lately, though, I've been reading constantly people, different bloggers, different people on their Twitter feeds, trying to come up with a new way for newspapers to survive. And you, David, I know, spent a lot of time with us last week talking to people in and around the business who think they have some kind of a path out of the wilderness. So you could just go ahead and lay that right on us. Well, let's take one moment and think about the wilderness. I mean, we all know that newspapers have been hammered by losing paying subscribers as reading habits have changed. You know, there's TV, the internet, the iPod, the Wii, the Xbox, basically pretty much anything and everything with a the in front of it. And when people stop (laughs) paying, the Beatles, advertisers don't want to pay as much to advertise and some don't want to pay at all. That's the, you know, the so-called structural problem with newspapers. You mean like the, the structure itself is wrong? Is that what you mean? Yeah, it's, it's a problem. You know, classifieds have gone online to Craigslist. And meanwhile, there's this cyclical problem where advertisers are just disappearing. The, the recession, the, meaning the recession. business cycle. Exactly. Right. So a structural problem, we think about like the business model, like the way they get money isn't, isn't going to cover the cost anymore. And, and cyclical is just like the economy's down right now. So, it's I mean, you know, when I think right? in like one thing you don't always think about is – 
uh, you think of stores closing, but they're also mergers, right? In Baltimore, the paper used to get, you know, multiple full-page ads from department stores, but Hecht's, one of the department stores, became part of Macy's. So now you just get one classified ad. And, you know, and that there's less competition, so there's less lead, need for those places to advertise. It can just be devastating. Right, and consolidation among cell phone companies and among you know, cable companies and among airlines. That's been a real hit for papers. And meanwhile, people are migrating online to read where advertisers don't pay nearly as much to reach them and where readers, with very few exceptions, aren't really paying to read. So one of the people I've talked to in recent days is Steve Brill. Now, Steve Brill is a really, really famous person. I actually caught a glimpse of him once when I went to apply for a job at his old magazine, which is now gone, Steve and Brill's content, right? Yep. Yep. I saw him back through there, and I thought, that's Steve Brill for sure. I was just sitting in the in the waiting room. His baseball card goes something like this. Journalist, <laughs> entrepreneur, founder of the American Lawyer newspaper and Court TV. He's also the founder of a private firm called Verified Identity Pass. It uses biometrics like a retinal scan of your eyeball to whisk people through those TSA checkpoints at the airports. Yeah, he's a fascinating and brilliant guy. It, that's exactly the Steve Brill here. He's, he's partnered with a couple folks who include the former publisher of the Wall Street Journal, and they've announced this venture called Journalism Online LLC that Brill says may set things straight by forcing people to pay for what news they read online. And here's part of what Brill told me uh, when we talked recently. It's an attempt to bring uh, the business model for journalism back to what it always has been, which is um, readers pay a share of it and advertisers pay a share of it except, of course, for NPR. Um, and um, uh, what's happened over over the last several years is that uh, you know, newspaper publishers um, and magazine publishers have been engaged in, in group suicide, where they all decided, for reasons that I can't figure out, that uh, they were going to give their stuff away for free online at the same time that they sell it on newsstands, which makes no sense. Um, and uh, they're now seeing the consequences of it combined with obviously the consequences of, uh, of you know, the overall um, economy. Now, Brill says that newspapers would have to take a plunge pretty much together that and that each would have to figure out some pricing system, whether to charge pennies per article or, you know, a couple bucks for each month of access or just for stories about your favorite baseball team or your senators or whatever. I mean, I sort of think of this as being like the sort of like the iTunes model, right? I mean, it used to be that music was available for free everywhere and the artists were like, how are we ever going to get paid? Uh, and then, you know, people, uh, they set up these services where you can pay a small amount of money and it's small enough that people are like, yeah, you know, that that's fine. And I'll feel good about myself and I'll I'll... Do it right and, and pay for the song. Well, this is the idea. And it's funny that you mentioned iTunes because he's inspired by that. He says he thinks this really will work as long as it was just that quick. And we think we've come up with a, 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 a simple, at least simple for the consumer, solution to do this. I mean, the reason that iTunes works is because it's relatively inexpensive, but most important because it's simple. So, you know, my three kids have gone from being pirates of music to kids who buy it because Steve Jobs made it really easy to buy it. So obviously there could be some antitrust issues if people perceive the newspapers to be acting in concert. But Brill has some pretty major legal firepower behind him. And he says if the producers of serious news take that news away from people, they'll really notice what they're missing. I mean, this has sort of been tried in the past, right? That New York Times tried putting its most famous writers that you everyone thought, you know, 
somebody can't live without columnists like Maureen Dowd and Thomas Friedman. Uh, they put them behind a wall. You're supposed to pay if you wanted to read them. But that didn't work. They even put the crossword puzzle, which yeah. you think like – Forget it, man. People will pay for the crossword puzzle. That didn't work. You know, you're saying they charge for clues or something, right? Like, <laughs> right. But so haven't we tried this? Down, man. <laughs> haven't we tried this? Well, look, it's worked in certain specific areas, like some smaller papers that don't have immediate regional competitors have made it work. The Idaho Falls Post Register is one of those. Uh, the Wall Street Journal seems to have held on to and even slightly increased its paid circulation by having paid online subscribe uh, scri- subscription form. And you got to remember, though, people see the journal as the definitive financial news outlet in the country. People value that. It's kind of tough to make people pay for news stories on the web as a general rule, though. If you think the Rocky Mountain News in Denver was shut down earlier this year by its owners, and a group of the paper's journalists combined to create an online site with three local entrepreneurs called In Denver Times. They said, hey, we'll stay in business if we can get 50,000 paid subscribers by late April. They got 3,000. Wow. Wow. So I asked Jay Hamilton what he thought of the model of Brill's Journalism Online, LLC. Hamilton's the director of the DeWitt Wallace Center for Media and Democracy at Duke University, who studies media economics. And Hamilton says Brill's plan overlooks a pretty central problem about what people are willing to pay for. The things that help you do your job, stuff that helps you find a product, things that are just fun to know, like information about celebrities, that's going to be there. The... um, but there is this gap between what people need to know and what they want to know. The set of boring stories about city councils or agencies, that accountability journalism that created the sense of somebody is watching what you're doing if you're in government, um, that has always been subsidized in some ways. Now, hang on a second. Can I just jump in here for a second? This isn't, David, one of the things people talk about working is is the story about your city council because it's local and your newspaper isn't going to cover it as closely as you might like. You know, you can do it if you got a big splashy expose. But if you're going to have the humdrum of every day just being there to make sure people aren't getting away with something in a story that doesn't uh, yield kind of salacious results, um, I don't know that people are going to be paying for that so much. But that's the whole thing with New York Times rolling out their local blogs and saying we're going to we're going to blog neighborhood by neighborhood. We're going to we're going to bring the web down to right, this micro you, level. So far, you haven't seen the Times saying and we're going to charge the people of Queens to read it. No, They're we saying that's we're going to offer it. That's true. The other problem is that if a local paper is out there doing the daily stories and then something big happens because they've been following every stuff, everything day to day. You know, what happens is some other aggregator site is going to grab the story, slap a headline on it and people go to them. That's exactly right. And what Jay Hamilton says is that you can almost always get a replacement that's at least good enough. So in his case, he reads the Washington Post daily online. But if the Post started charging for content that way, he says he'd just substitute Politico.com. And he also was very careful to warn against the comparison with iTunes. And he talked a bit about that. Unless that information is is very special, um, it's going to be hard to charge for, in part because unlike uh, the music industry, uh, you can't copyright facts. You can copyright songs, and your favorite performer may not have good substitutes, and you like to listen to a song over and over again. So uh, charging for music works because the property rights are different and your demand for the information is different. Charging for news um, uh, doesn't work if there are other many other people competing for your attention and willing to uh, offer it for to you. 
So Jay Hamilton's not actually hostile to Brill in that he says someone has to come up with a solution or else we'll be running a huge experiment, in his words, to, to see how big can corruption and waste grow to be at the local level when newspapers just go away. His solution, and he, it's not the only voice you hear saying this, is to suggest kind of a public radio model in which people could contribute money to a not-for-profit arm of the New York Times or the Boston Globe or whatever paper to help sustain its reporting. I mean, it's sort of like the BBC is that way, right? It's supported by tax, tax well, dollars. Well, the BBC is supported by a mandated extraction that's levied on any person in, in, in Great right. Britain who owns a TV. <laughs> and it's astonishing how resentful people are of the way they monitor it. But it is treated as a sort of public good, do you know Absolutely. what I mean? Right? Yeah, There's real value put on that. We're not going to start taxing everybody who has a doorstep for the, having the ability to have a newspaper. I don't think it. that would go over well here. No, the doorstep right. tax as proposed by Laura Conway. There here you go. Planet you heard Money. it here first, right here. All right. But you believe, David, that there's one thing that gets mentioned only in passing most of the time. I've heard you talk about it. It's not the structural problems for newspapers where they have to change their business model. And it's not this incredible economy with the recession knocking out ad dollars. Because despite this kind of ghoulish parade of headlines we get, most newspapers are actually making at least some money right now. Well, right. I mean, it's the thing that's perhaps most familiar to the listeners of Planet Money's podcast, and that's debt. Needless, gratuitous debt is driving some once great newspapers into the ground. The Tribune Company, my old employer, which owns the LA Times, Chicago Tribune, the Baltimore Sun, and some other solid papers, is in bankruptcy protection. Sam Zell took over the company less than two years ago in a deal that saddled it with $13 billion of debt. And that's particularly jarring because he put down only $315 million in his own money to do it. But there are plenty of other examples, too. You, you think of the parent companies of the Minneapolis Star Tribune and the Philadelphia Inquirer. They're both operating under bankruptcy protection. The McClatchy Company, which is the owner of the Miami Herald and the Sacramento Bee and 28 other papers, has been warned by the New York Stock Exchange that it's about to be delisted because it's on such shaky financial ground due to debt. See, I think that's really interesting because we're always hearing that the that the media and newspapers are a particular case with particular problems. But what you're telling us is that it's the same familiar refrain with current owners. They borrowed too much money. The credit was easy. And they've been gutting their papers to sort of prop up profits and cover those debt payments. And it sounds like it really has very little to do with journalism and news and storytelling and problems with the financial model, the structural problems, as you say. So... Uh, is there any way in which this is going to turn out to be good news? Are we going to have newspapers? Well, there's no way to say this is good news, and it doesn't reflect well on the people running, you know, our supposed journalistic watchdogs here. Uh, I guess there's a sliver of hope in the sense that not all of the problems are endemic to the news business per se. A lot of the problems have been brought on by, you know, the way in which corporate chiefs did business, which is not to dismiss the very real structural and cyclical problems we talked about before. But a lot of this has nothing to do with the news business. So if they can figure out a way to get past that or if bankruptcy protection helps them get through, uh, it may not be quite as bleak as it looks at the moment. All right. Thank you, David Folkenflick, for the first good news I've heard about the media, really, in quite a while. It's been great having you around the blog all last week. A lot of fun. All right, folks, that just about does it for us today. But we have one small piece of, let's go ahead and we'll call this business. I'm not sure it's business, but it involves you, the Planet Money listener. David Kestenbaum, you and Hannah Jaffe-Walt cooked up this idea. Let's roll it. So, David, you know I'm a Jew. Yeah. I, I, maybe that wasn't obvious, but Hannah. <laughs> I I always kind of wished I was a Catholic, only because I really I love the idea of going to confessional. It's like you go into this little room, 
and you just let it all go. Yeah, I know. I can, I can see that. So, David, I'm going to tell you something. Okay. I'm in a confessional booth right now. Really? Yeah. I have heavy velvet curtain up all around me, and it's dark, but in this really nice way, really relaxing, you know, reflective. Management approved the purchase of velvet curtains? Yo, David, use your imagination, man. It's radio. You can't see me. Just picture it. Okay. You, you said you were in a confessional. I'm in a confessional. All right. Uh, Caitlin, can we get a little organ here? Great. Nice. Yeah. So I'm in a confessional, and I'm thinking about, you know, what people think about in confessionals, the economy and how it's all my fault. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is something we talk about a lot on the show, David, where on this mad search to find people to blame for all of you listening, and uh, we, we are going to find you some real villains. But for the most part, people keep telling us that we're all kind of to blame. Which I have to say is, is pretty unsatisfying. Right. Yeah, it is. But it doesn't have to be. Step into the booth, David. Just think about it. How are we all to blame for landing us in this crisis? I mean, I thought it'd be kind of interesting, you know, if we keep hearing that we need to blame everyone, all of us. If all of you out there, are, are you really feeling that? Maybe you're thinking about ways in which you are to blame. And not for everything, of course, but in some small way, if we're all to blame, what was your part? Tell it to the priest. Oh, right, the priest. <laughs> this is why you don't get a Jew to set up your confessional. All right, kill the organ. Whatever the image is you prefer, maybe confessional isn't your thing, or maybe you always wished you could be in a confessional. We'd just like to hear from you. What what part did you play in the crisis? So, David, we set up a phone line for people to call us and apologize for causing the financial crisis. And uh, I thought you could call it. Me? Yeah, you. You think you're exempt from the we're all to blame thing? Uh, I don't Come on, I don't know. come on. We need a model. We need listeners need to hear someone do it. Here. Just hear how it will sound. Okay, ready? I'm dialing. Hi, this is Adam Davidson. You've reached the Planet Money Apology Line. If you're a government official, press 1. If you work for a large money center bank, press 2. No, I'm just kidding. That's not how we're doing it. This line is for anyone who wants to own up to some small part of the economic crisis or if you want to own up to some big part of the cause of the economic crisis. Please also give us your name and a way to contact you and also if you're leaving a message here and you don't explicitly tell us not to, we may use uh, the recording uh, on the podcast, on the radio, or in, you know, in other ways. But you can tell us not to, and then we won't. Thank you very much. Uh, hi, this is David Kestenbaum. I'm a reporter with Planet Money, and uh, I'm sorry. As a journalist... I guess I should have seen the housing crisis coming. I did not see the housing crisis coming. I'm really, really sorry. I wasn't covering economics, but I'm, but I'm sorry anyway. Uh, and I'm going to do my best to find what the next crisis might be. And we will do our best to report that to you. That is my pledge. Uh, also, I guess I didn't short the housing market, which I could have done. And I could be more patient and... I finished the milk in the fridge, and uh, if I think of anything else, I'll call back. Okay, bye. That was great, David. Okay. 
All right. All of you out there, it's your turn. And don't just copy David's. You can't all be guilty for being journalists. So how did you get us here? The number to call is 202-371-1775. I'm going to say it again. 202-371-1775. And we will, of course, post that number on our blog, npr.org slash money. We'll be checking that line, Planet Money people, and waiting for your true confessions. I'll even toss a few of them onto the blog, maybe at npr.org slash money. All right, then. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening. Yeah.